Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the two-part series on Gabby Petito. If you haven't done so, please listen to part one before you listen to this episode. Now, this case is very close to my heart, and I want the world to understand why this case is so important, especially to everyone who finds themselves in a dangerous relationship and needs help. But let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In part one, we introduced you to Gabby Petito and her young, adventure-filled life. Her and her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, was, had set out in July of 2021 on a four-month tour of the United States from her camper van. As a social media personality, she was hoping to build on her Instagram and YouTube followings to sustain a nomadic lifestyle with Brian. In mid-August, just over six weeks into their trip, they were investigated for a domestic assault incident in Moab, Utah. Eventually, they were told to separate, and no charges were filed. Shortly after this incident, Brian would leave for Florida, but return after a week. So we pick up our story on August 24th, the day after Brian returned to Utah. Gabby had FaceTimed with her mother, telling her that they are leaving Utah and they were headed to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. The following day, her mother received a text from Gabby stated that they were in the Teton range of Wyoming. The date was August 25th, and this would be the last day that Gabby would make an Instagram post. On August 27th, a couple vacationing in Jackson, Wyoming, witnessed another domestic incident between Gabby and Brian inside of a Tex-Mex restaurant. The witness stated that Gabby was visibly upset while Brian was angry with all the staff in the dining establishment. Brian was walking in and out of the place, verbally accosting the hostess and wait staff while Gabby cried. While no hostilities towards Gabby were seen, it was clear to witnesses that emotions were high once again. Gabby's mother received several texts from Gabby on the 27th, but nothing of substance is reported in any of the sources I read. So before we go any further in this story... What we've seen now is this incident in Moab. I I mentioned it in episode one. Brian is definitely one of those guys that it's very clear has emotional issues and is prone to these these outbursts. And there was witnesses that saw him slap uh, Gabby outside of this the Moonflower Co-op in Moab. And now there's witnesses seeing him verbally accosting the staff at this Tex-Mex restaurant. We've talked about how this is a very stressful time in in Gabby and Brian's life with this travel. Finances are probably tight. They are trying to make ends meet. But at the same time, you know, I also mentioned how calm and collected Brian was on the police body cam video during that Moab incident. And I mentioned that there's a possibility that he could control his emotions when he wanted to to make it look like he was not somebody who got upset easily. And I, and I saw this a lot as a police officer. There's a lot of people that will just be the most outrageous, extreme, angry, out-of-control people towards 
loved ones behind closed doors and as soon as the police arrive they act like they're the nicest guy in the world and sometimes it took significant others secretly recording these outbursts and then playing them for police officers or talking to neighbors in an apartment complex with neighbors confirming yeah that guy flies off the handle all of the time he's screaming yelling swearing berating the woman that lives there berating the children that live there because some of these guys and gals have the capabilities of these extreme emotional swings but they also have the capability to control their anger in situations and i guarantee had somebody at this tex-mex restaurant called to report brian was out of control and police officers arrived we would have seen a much calmer laid back brian on police body cam footage if if that actually happened so just because he appears on that body cam footage in moab being this calm collected guy again that's something that these people in toxic relationships the controlling party in toxic relationship is often very good at these emotional swings between these extremely out of control to being extremely in control of their emotions and i think it's just important to note that just before this horrendous crime we have independent witnesses again seeing brian in the out of control situation and gabby being emotionally distressed by this in public with her crying because from everything that i read and everything that i know about gabby's family gabby did not seem like someone who was comfortable with these extreme emotions she was somebody who just wanted people to get along and just wanted people to be happy and so this was going to be very difficult for her to handle the way that brian is acting and this is brian out in public we're not seeing brian behind closed doors we're not seeing how he is treating gabby you know when the cameras are off and that's that's a big part of the social media thing too is everybody talks about it but you go onto facebook and for the most part whether it be Facebook or YouTube or Instagram, you see people at the best times in their life. They're happy. They're smiling. People don't usually post to YouTube or Instagram or Facebook these difficult times in their life when they're getting yelled at by somebody, when they're getting screamed at, when they're crying. And so what you're seeing from Gabby on this trip prior to this August 27th date, you're seeing you know, her doing yoga to, to the sunrise or sunset outside of a national park you're seeing these amazing landscapes you're seeing her hiking through amazing places and again brian is this during his happy go luck his times where he's able to control his emotions these are all being posted these other incidents what you're seeing outside the moonflower co-op what you're seeing at this tex-mex restaurant they are not going on youtube or instagram so people are not getting the true look at what's going on inside this relationship, except we can take these couple moments, just these two public moments, the Moonflower Co-op and this, and this restaurant, and look at, is this more of the norm for what Gabby was putting up with, or were these isolated incidents? But being that most of their time is spent outside of the public view, I would imagine that, especially with all the stress going on, especially with what happened in Moab, with him leaving and coming back, that this is more likely the the Brian that we're seeing that's visibly upset, and this is what Gabby is putting up with day in and day out. 
and it's unfortunately going to only escalate from here. And August 27th was the last day anyone in Gabby's family believed they actually heard from Gabby. Texts later in the day are questioned by family as Gabby's phone sent them texts asking for them to help Stan. And Stan was Gabby's grandfather, but she never called him by his first name. And we've talked about this on several other episodes. Somebody communicating, especially via whether it be email or text or posting to Facebook or posting to Instagram through somebody else's account, through somebody else's phone, is not an indication that that person is okay or is actually using that communication device or that communication medium. Anybody that has access to somebody else's phone via their passcode or another way to access that phone can once you get into that phone you can access all these apps most of these apps unless it's a financial app or something don't have any further login requirements so you can text you can post you can do all this kind of stuff from somebody's phone and that doesn't mean that obviously the person whose phone it is is the person who is sending those messages and as soon as somebody's messages come through a little bit differently and this can be grammatical errors that they don't normally make or in some cases where the grammar is clean and that person doesn't normally use clean grammar as somebody who uses a lot of abbreviations or emojis and all of a sudden they're not using those abbreviations or emojis so again anytime you see a major change in the way somebody is communicating or in this case calling somebody by a name that would be known to most people but isn't the name that somebody would normally use like I never called my grandfather by his first name he to me he was my grandpa like I still don't refer to him as anything other than my grandpa even though he's been passed away for several years I would never in a text message to my parents talk about him in his in his first name so if that came through my parents would wonder a probably who I was even talking about because I wouldn't refer to him with his first name but B, they're probably going to realize really quickly that it wasn't me that sent that text message. And then on August 29th, a couple picked up Brian Laundrie as he was walking along the side of the road in Coulter Bay, Wyoming. He told the couple that his fiancée Gabby was at a nearby campground working on social media posts and he had gone for a hike and got lost. When he had asked for a ride from the couple, he mistakenly assumed they were going to Jackson, but in reality they were going to Jackson Hole. So he got angry and asked to be let out of his vehicle near Jackson Dam. And so we're seeing again, he's hitchhiking, gets a ride from a couple. He makes the mistake. There's a lot of different Jacksons in this area. There's Jackson Hole, Jackson, Jackson Dam. He doesn't verify where this couple's actually heading. And when he finds out it's the wrong direction, he gets angry and asks to be let out of the vehicle. If I'm hitchhiking and I, I truly got lost while on a hike, I mean, I'm not going to get angry. I might get, I might be frustrated to a certain degree, but I'm not angry at the people that gave me a ride. They're trying to help me out. It's my own fault if I'm not communicating with them where I actually need to go. So it just, again, here is another example of some independent witnesses that don't know Brian, and they're in their short run-in with him, he's already getting emotional. Then another woman picked up Brian and gave him a ride to the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area. This is a free open area camping site with no amenities. It sits in full view of the Grand Teton Range and is a popular place for people to spend a free night or two while roughing it. Brian had told this woman that his fiance was working on a social media blog from their van in the campground and he had done a two day hike along Snake River. 
She offered to drive him right to the van, but he asked to be dropped off at the campground entrance. Gabby's family received a text from Gabby's phone the next day that said, no service in Yosemite, and Gabby's family was sure the text wasn't from Gabby. And so there's going to be a lot eventually that's going to be looked upon this. Now, one of the difficulties with this case in terms of the timeline, even coming from Gabby's family here, is if you've ever traveled through some of these remote areas of the western United States, uh, including areas around the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, uh, Idaho, northern parts of Utah, there's areas to this day that still have no cell service. So if they're staying in some of these rough remote camping areas that are basically just a field that you can pull off in and sleep and you're in the middle of a mountain range, it wouldn't be unexpected for somebody to go a couple days without communicating until that person is back into a cell service area or somewhere where they can get Wi-Fi. So when you have these, you know, the golden rules of 48 hours from the time they were last seen, things are going to get very murky very quickly here because the timeline is going to be so skewed by lack of true information as to the whereabouts of Gabby and Brian during this time frame. But pretty soon, I'm sure, just like any family of somebody who's missing or presumed to be missing, as soon as they start getting text messages from Gabby's phone that don't quite look right, they're going to start already forming in their brain some of these other options. Now, just human nature is going to be, you go the full gamut here from everything from, everything's fine, she's just stressed and she's going out in and out of cell service to something really bad happened. And then there's a ton of stuff in between that you're potentially running through your head. But as more time passes and you're not getting any confirmation to rule out some of the stuff on the bad end of things, and it's less and less likely that just some of the minor things that you believe could have happened are able to explain the current situation, then you start to realize you need to start to take action. And as all of this is going on, as, as Gabby's family is going through this thought process, trying to figure out how do we get a hold of Gabby, the last text message that they don't even believe came from Gabby said she was in Yosemite. Prior to that, the last they knew she was in the Grand Tetons. I mean, that's quite a distance to drive anyway between the two. It's not impossible to do, but you now know that Gabby could roughly be anywhere in the western United States between California and... Wyoming, and that's a lot of desolate, remote area that she could be in at that point. So even in terms of reporting her missing, this is going to be difficult. But they still don't take that step until on September 1st, roughly 67 hours after he was dropped off outside that campground, Brian arrives back in Florida in Gabby's van, and Gabby is nowhere to be seen. And Brian did not communicate any information to Gabby's family about his return to Florida or Gabby's location. And on September 6th, Brian and his family went camping together for Labor Day weekend, and Gabby's parents had not heard from her in almost two weeks at this point. So finally, on September 11th, Gabby's parents make the decision to report her missing to the police in their hometown in New York. Investigators there contacted Northport, Florida Police, where Gabby had been residing with Brian before leaving on their trip, and they requested the Florida officers do a check welfare on Gabby. And this is one of the most difficult parts of a missing persons case involving young adults is 
the fact that young adults are often very transitional in their housing, especially somebody like Gabby who's living out of a van, but even before then, they're living with Brian's parents in Florida. Gabby's parents reside in New York at this point. Sometimes, I don't know if Gabby had a New York driver's license at this point with a permanent address of her parents' house. I don't know if she had changed and gotten a Florida driver's license with Brian's parents' address as her address. A lot of times it's the whatever state identification card you have, wherever your mail is going for the most part, uh, whatever you consider to be your quote-unquote permanent address is where that missing persons report needs to be filed from. But when you're living in New York and your daughter has been residing in Florida but is potentially missing out of somewhere between Wyoming and California, it's a logistical and jurisdictional nightmare to try to report this person missing. Unfortunately, you can often run into police officers that on an, taking the initial call, they don't want to do a report. So they will push that report onto whatever agency they think is going to be the next jurisdiction. And as a police officer, I tried my best not to do this because I understood that people were in dire straits at this point, that they're just looking for something to get started. And phone calls from a concerned parent halfway across the country don't always get things going, but a phone call from a police officer anywhere in the country will often get results or, or get some action going. So oftentimes if I had a parent whose college-age student lived with them normally in the city I worked in, but maybe they were off at college somewhere, or just like Gabby, they were living with a loved one's relatives in some other state, if they were running into any type of issue reporting the missing, I would often take that report and then I would have my dispatch call up whatever agency that is, say, hey, we have a report of a missing person here. We will send you the report. We have entered the person into missing. Can you do a check welfare on this person? You're kind of taking some of the onus off of this other agency that might not want to take the first part of this missing persons report. And eventually, if, if it's a really bad situation, they might end up having to take over the entire case, but at least it gets the ball rolling. Where, again, in, in this situation, it's just one of those tough situations where Gabby technically probably considered to be living with her parents in New York, but she wasn't actually physically living with her parents in New York. She had this temporary residence with a loved one's family in Florida, and then at the same time, she's transient traveling across the country and went missing somewhere in the western United States. The focus at this point, though, is not going to be on trying to locate Gabby in the western states. It's going to be to try to figure out how Brian returned home to Florida in Gabby's van without Gabby. So with this picture painted for officers, again, it's pretty simple to say we're concerned about our daughter. We haven't had contact with her in two weeks at this point. She was supposed to be in the western United States with her fiance living out of their van. We couldn't get in contact. We didn't know where they were at. We we're, we're just every day we we're just hoping that she would get back into cell service, let us know everything's okay. But now we have found out that this fiance has returned with her van and we don't know, still don't know where, where Gabby is. So with that spelled out to officers, it's it's very clear something's not right here. And so they're going to go do a check welfare on Gabby at Brian's parents' house in Northport. 
So when Northport officers arrive at the home of the Laundries, they're handed the information for the family attorney and turned away from the house. There's no conversation between the Laundries and Northport officers other than the attorney information. So now things are looking even worse. I mean, as a law enforcement officer, you're absolutely expecting the worst at this point because even if Gabby was just left behind out in the Western United States, she was fine, but she was left behind. Everything else could be kind of seen as a civil issue between the parties. You don't, you don't need to get lawyers involved at this point as, I mean, it's, it's, it'd be borderline criminal what he did with the van because there could be some arguments that he normally drove the van, that Gabby had given Brian permission to drive the van in the past. So especially all Brian has to say at this point is, yeah, Gabby said we needed another break. She was going to stay out in Yosemite area and work on her social media stuff. I'm bringing the van back to Florida to get some more stuff that we need. There's there's nothing that screams a crime occurred unless you know that a crime did occur and you're now getting lawyers involved for that reason. So officers realize pretty quick that this is not how a missing persons report is normally handled, especially from the family of the fiance of that missing person. So it's gonna unfortunately cement the idea in just about everybody's mind at this point, including the fact that this has now hit the national news that something terrible has happened to Gabby. Brian knows what happened, knows where Gabby is. It's possible that Brian's parents do as well, but they're not going to cooperate at all with the investigation, which is their right to do so. And unfortunately, in this case, the family has the right to remain quiet on this matter. But at the same time, I mean, from a morality standpoint, from a just a public image standpoint, uh, this family has done no favors to themselves by the way that they acted during this investigation. On September 15th, the Northport chief of police took to Twitter to plead with the laundries to ask them to allow investigators to talk to Brian. Meanwhile, searches started to be conducted in the Grand Teton area as it was the last place Gabby was seen alive, and the two witnesses who gave Brian a ride that day came forward to the FBI to advise them of where Brian was and what he said on the day they gave him a ride in the area of the campground. So as investigators aren't able to talk to Brian at this point, they're going to look to other avenues to try to locate Gabby. And this begins by going to the last place Gabby was known to be alive. There was no proof that they ever went to Yosemite other than this text. And unless you had people in Yosemite telling you that they've seen Gabby in the area, or they saw Brian and Gabby together, there's really no reason to look anywhere from Yosemite all the way back to Grand Teton unless you can find somebody between Yosemite and Grand Teton that can confirm that they saw Gabby and Brian in the area. So as they have these eyewitnesses coming forward to state, hey, we saw this guy, he was in this area, he was alone, and this is after the time period in which Gabby's family has lost contact with her, law enforcement is pretty quickly going to focus on this area around this this dispersed campground area and the area in which Brian was picked up coming out of the woods because to anybody else looking from the outside, this now looks as if Brian did something to Gabby in that area and he was then alone from that point on. And the next day, September 16th, Gabby's family hired an attorney who prepared a statement that was read in public. 
The statement was aimed at Brian and said in part, please, if you or your family have any decency left, please tell us where Gabby is located. Tell us if we are even looking in the right place. All we want is for Gabby to come home. Please help make that happen. So Gabby's family does something very smart here. They know the public image towards the laundries is, is very low. They're offering a chance, almost a peace offering via the, the media to the laundry saying, hey, just come forward and tell us, like, are we looking in the right place? Is is the last place that, that Gabby was seen alive, are, is this where we should be looking? Because there is a lot of time, resources, emotional effort going into this search for Gabby at this point. And they're really, again, offering a little bit of light to the laundry family because Brian could come forward through the attorney at this point and say, hey, the last time I saw Gabby, she was in the Grand Teton area, which, again, it doesn't implicate him in anything other than the fact that he's giving a little bit of guidance. Like, if you were to be looking for Gabby, that would be a place to be looking. Now, from a legal standpoint, no lawyer's ever going to let their clients say that because there's going to be all types of ramifications. We have the text supposedly from her phone saying they're in Yosemite. If Brian's the only one that has access to her phone after she goes missing, then he, it's already established that he's trying to interfere with the investigation at, at the point in which he sent those Yosemite texts. So I understand from a legal standpoint why the Laundry family would not respond at this point, but again, the, the fact that they don't respond makes it even worse of a situation that was already bad for the laundries. Now, the lawyer stated Gabby's family had reached out to the laundries for any information of where Gabby might be, but the family had refused to communicate. On the following day, September 17th, Brian's mother summoned Northport police to the family home to report Brian missing. They state that he took off on September 14th and don't know exactly where he went, but it's possible that he entered a 25,000-acre wildlife preserve and swamp called the Carlton Reserve. So then simultaneous searches began for Gabby in Wyoming and Brian in Florida. Two days later, on September 19th, searchers in Wyoming located human remains that were consistent with Gabby Petito. The remains were later identified as Gabby's, and the search for her was over with a tragic outcome. However, the search for Brian continued. Investigators were no longer looking in the reserve, but operating under the idea that he could be on the run inside the United States. So with this lack of cooperation from Brian's family, police don't know what to believe anymore. The family waited three days to report him missing, which is enough time for him to get to the other side of the United States if he wanted to, or I guess to try to make a run for either Canada or Mexico. So this is going to make the investigation even more difficult. And in the meantime, they've got investigators searching the swamp. And the swamps of Florida are no fun place to search. I mean, you're talking about... September in Florida, it's going to be hot, it's going to be muggy. These swamps are filled with snakes and alligators and wild hogs and all kinds of stuff, mosquitoes, bugs, spiders. I mean, these searchers are out looking for this guy that this could have just all been resolved if the family had just cooperated earlier. But they've played every possible game they could through the lawyers to the point that they've now allowed Brian this head start. And investigators not only have to be looking in this deadly swamp, they also have to be looking potentially all over the United States for, for somebody who they believe has now killed Gabby and is on the run. 
So FBI agents conducted a search warrant at the laundry home on September 20th, confirming to the media that the search was related to the Gabby Petito investigation, but declining to give any further details. And this is really the only criticism, I guess, I have of law enforcement in the back part of this investigation. And by that, I mean after the Moab. So we set aside the controversies of the Moab investigation in episode one. In episode two, what I do bring into question is how long it took investigators to be able to get into this this laundry home. Now, I understand Gabby's remains were found on the 19th. I'm assuming she was identified either on the 19th or the 20th. And this is because of some fraudulent debit card usage by Brian, which they're going to then believe happened after Gabby's death. So she couldn't have given Brian permission to use her card. So it's kind of a, we can't prove Brian killed Gabby, but we can prove that Brian committed a crime while in Wyoming and then fled and actually I think committed this, this debit card fraud in maybe a couple different states, which makes it a federal case, which allows the FBI to get into the laundry home. But in reality, this is nine days after Gabby was reported missing. And in that time period, Brian has gone on the run and key and crucial evidence and the ability to locate and arrest Brian has passed. So again, I understand there are limitations and they were working with whatever evidence they had at the time. But it just, to me, said my only criticism is that it took too long to take the major steps in this investigation that needed to be taken in order to try to bring about some closure. Now, on September 23rd, the FBI issued a warrant for Brian Laundrie for his fraudulent use of a debit card while he was in Wyoming. While they declined to reveal if the card used belonged to Gabby, it was assumed that evidence was produced that showed he used her card and the warrant was ground to arrest him on site while they built a homicide case against him. And we've talked about this in the past. These are these minor charges they'll use in order to get an arrest warrant. Again, they don't have any direct physical evidence to link him to the actual homicide at this point, so they can't issue an arrest warrant warrant for homicide without probable cause, but they do have probable cause for this fraudulent credit card use, so they can issue a warrant for that. If he gets picked up on that, he's going to get held because he's also a suspect in a homicide, at which point they can hold him on the other charges until they complete their homicide case against him. Gabby was laid to rest on September 26th in Long Island, New York. A thousand people attended the service, and the service was streamed online. Gabby's cause of death was released on October 12th and is ruled that she died via strangulation. While the pathologist ruled that her body had been outside for a time period of three to four weeks before discovery, he couldn't pinpoint her exact date of death via the autopsy results. And this is actually a very difficult science. Once you get outside of a certain window of the postmortem interval, the PMI, you really move into an area of estimation at that point. Uh, it, there's especially for a body that's been outside in fluctuating temperatures it's very difficult for these pathologists to pin down an exact date of death it, there's just too many factors at play and for example just even depending if the body is 
left out in an area that is accessible to the sunlight or if it's in a fully shaded area, decomposition is going to be accelerated uh, if the body's in sunlight versus if it's in a shaded area. The body is covered by debris or not covered by debris. I mean, there's so many different factors that, that come into the, the, the PMI at this point for a body left outside that it's going to be difficult to say an exact date in which uh, she was killed, but they are going to be able to say that it's around the time period that her text messages stopped to her family. A week later, on October 20th, human remains were found in a park in Florida next to a backpack and a notebook that belonged to Brian Laundrie. The body was found in Carlton Park Reserve, the area authorities had suspected Brian was hiding out in. It had been the previous evening, October 19th, that members of the Laundrie family had informed law enforcement that they would be doing their own search for Brian the following day. On the 20th, they had met with law enforcement officers after a quote-unquote brief search. The family and officers found articles that belonged to Brian. This led them to the area Brian was found in, which according to officials had been underwater during the time they searched the park in September. The following day, Brian's body was identified via dental records and the cause and manner of death was released as a gunshot wound to the head and suicide. The notebook found near Brian included a written confession from Brian about his involvement in Gabby's death and on January 21st, 2022, the FBI stated they had no indications that anyone else was involved in Gabby's homicide and the case was considered closed. So this, again, is just kind of a final nail in the coffin of how the Laundry family is viewed by the public and by law enforcement. Again, there's thousands of volunteer searchers that showed up and, and risked a lot to search this preserve and... Uh, not to mention the ones that searched for Gabby, too, in the, in the Grand Teton area. And all along, Brian knew exactly where Gabby was, and it seemed as if Brian's family knew where he could be found in this reserve, because it didn't take them very long after they joined the search to locate the body. So there's probably a place within that preserve that Brian was familiar with and the family thought he might go to, but again, this was not information that they gave to law enforcement until suddenly they became concerned for Brian's welfare. So that kind of cemented everybody's mindset that this family was never about doing what was right, was only about trying to protect Brian until they realized that Brian was one that probably needed protecting and and by then it was too late because he had taken the, the easy way out. But the story isn't over and probably never will be. Gabby is just one of far too many women to die as a result of domestic violence. Gabby's parents filed two lawsuits in reference to their daughter's death. First lawsuit was a wrongful death case against Brian Laundrie's estate and against the Laundries themselves for purposely interfering with the investigation into Gabby's disappearance. The lawsuit alleges that Laundries put up significant and purposeful barriers to get to getting answers about Gabby while allowing Brian to avoid law enforcement and slip away, eventually taking his own life and denying the Petitos true justice in a court of law. And this was actually just settled a few months ago, and the judge ruled that the Laundries are required to pay Gabby's family $3 million. And while it is believed that the Laundries don't have that type of money, the Petito family has come out publicly and said any money that is collected as a result of this lawsuit will go to the Gabby Petito Foundation. The lawsuit against the Moab PD for $50 million is still underway, and it is for this reason and personal reasons I did not include any first-hand information about Gabby's case in these two episodes. And as I mentioned before, all the information about this case 
that I presented was obtained through public sources that I vetted, and my main purpose is in covering Gabby's case is to bring attention to toxic relationships with a high danger of domestic violence and domestic homicide. Thankfully, some quick change came about from this ordeal by several states, including Utah, looking at their domestic assault laws and adding more tools for law enforcement. In March of 2023, the Utah legislature passed a bill requiring law enforcement officers to conduct a lethality assessment when talking with victims of domestic violence. So this is something we mentioned in episode one, and I said I would get into it more in part two. So these are the actual questions that are read during the Utah's lethality assessment. So the first one is if the aggressor has ever used a weapon against the victim or threatened the victim with a weapon. And this is obviously pretty self-explanatory that, and it says weapon, so that's going to include anything that could be deemed a weapon, which would be a knife, uh, some type of a heavy tool, obviously a firearm, and that's probably the most lethal indicator on this entire list of the propensity for a domestic homicide situation. Now, number two is if the aggressor has ever threatened to kill the victim or the victim's children. Again, pretty high indicator that that person has ill intentions towards uh, the victim. Three, if the victim believes the aggressor will try to kill the victim. So that doesn't even need to require the aggressor in this case to have done one or two. They, They don't ever have to have used a weapon against the aggressor or threatened them. It just could be that the victim honestly believes at some point that this aggressor will try to kill them. Four, if the aggressor has a gun or could easily get a gun. Five, if the aggressor has ever tried to choke the victim. Six, if the aggressor is violently or constantly jealous or controls most of the daily activities of the victim. Seven, if the victim left or separated from the aggressor after they were living together or married. Eight, if the aggressor is unemployed. Nine, if the aggressor has ever attempted suicide to the best of the victim's knowledge. 10. If the victim has a child that the aggressor believes is not the aggressor's biological child. And 11. If the aggressor follows or spies on the victim or leaves threatening messages for the victim. So again, these are all extremely telling signs. And it's not one of those, it's an all or nothing situation. This list really serves two purposes. One is to truly identify how dangerous a relationship is. And two, it's a little bit of a wake-up call to the victim or the people around the victim about the danger of this relationship. Because the more of these boxes that you can check, the more likely it is that the relationship could turn lethal at some point. And you know, there's there's some things on here people might question a little bit, like if the aggressor is unemployed, but this is all based off of looking at domestic homicide statistics and looking at the both the aggressors and the victims to determine the situation at the time of the homicide how many of these were present and the more of these that are present the more likely it was that the relationship became violent and and, and became a domestic homicide situation so what they're saying is that in the majority of the cases in which a uh, domestic homicide occurs, the aggressor is unemployed. Now, that doesn't mean that if an aggressor is employed that they are not a danger. It's Again, it's not a, this entire, this has to be everything on this list before a domestic homicide can occur. It's just, if you can check off 80% of these boxes, 90% of these boxes, even 50% of these boxes, 
it should be an indication to the victim and to law enforcement that this is a dangerous situation. And if we run through the list real quick, just in terms of what we know of Brian and Gabby's relationship, starting at 11, if the aggressor follows or spies on the victim or leaves threatening message for the victim, while there's obviously no proof of this, at least in any of the articles I read, reading between the lines of Brian having issues with Gabby working different shifts than him or working at a different place than him or looking at her social media and getting upset about people leaving comments, I'm, I'm definitely believing that's a, a check right there. Now, if the victim has a child, the aggressor believes. We know Gabby didn't have any children, so that's not going to apply. If the aggressor has ever attempted suicide, to the best of the victim's knowledge, again, we don't know that Brian had a attempted suicide history, but we know that he completed a suicide. So suicide was something that he was capable of, so we'll check that box. If the aggressor is unemployed, we can check that box. If the victim left or separated from the aggressor after they were living together or married, we do know that they had an on-again, off-again relationship. We do know that just after the Moab incident, they did have a separation, so we're going to consider that box checked. If the aggressor is violently or constantly jealous or controls most of the daily activities of the victim, we know we can check that box. Now, if the aggressor has ever tried to choke the victim, well, we know that he killed her via strangulation. So whether that was his first time or in this case, we'll just consider this box checked because we know that he did do that as the ultimate and final act of this relationship. If the aggressor has a gun or could easily get a gun, we know that he committed suicide via gun, so we can check that box. And then these other ones are difficult because they are going to require Gabby's point of view to a certain degree. If it believes the aggressor will try to kill the victim, I don't know if Gabby believed that or not. Uh, it's difficult because of everything that Gabby put up with. It's, it's possible she knew what a danger Brian was, and it's possible that she didn't. If aggressor has ever threatened to kill the victim, well, we know that he did, so after the fact, check that box. And if the aggressor ever, ever used a weapon against the victim or threatened the victim with a weapon, we don't know if that happened or not. But even just from the ones that, other than ruling out the one because of the children uh, not being involved, so if we just take that off the list altogether and make it out of 10, we're looking at very high percentage, at least confirmed 80%, and potentially as high as 100% of this list existed either after their relationship or possibly during their relationship. So again, this is one of those tools that if you can get honest answers from the victim, and, and that is a big part of it because victims are scared. Victims do not always want to tell the truth and, and they fear what the consequences are of telling the truth. But if you can get a good advocate or a good police officer to, to sit down with someone and go over this list, even just reading the list, even if that person isn't going to be honest during the answering of these questions, it still does serve a purpose just reading this list because it is going to make that victim think about the dangers of this relationship. Because even if they aren't truthful with the law enforcement officer or the advocate, they can't lie to themselves. I mean, they can, but the truth is going to exist in their brain to some degree. So I like these lethality assessments. I think they are a great tool for identifying these high-risk individuals that could become a victims of domestic violence homicide. And I think if they're paired with used as a gateway to getting them more help, it's going to help reduce the amount of domestic homicides that we see uh, in our society. 
but this list also shows how deeply complicated and tragic long-standing relationships that involve domestic violence and or control can be. And it's difficult for law enforcement to be that that stopping point for these these relationships because the way laws are written in most states, law enforcement needs evidence to support the elements of those crimes the way that they're written. And in a lot of these relationships, because this stuff occurs behind closed doors, it becomes a he said, she said, if the victim is going to even provide statements of what the other person said. So it just, it becomes very difficult to investigate these cases without more tools, without some non-criminal capabilities like I mentioned in episode one, like some type of a 72-hour no-contact order that can be issued at a moment's notice to try to provide that time period for this victim to get away and be in a safe place and rethink the relationship. And you know, within those 72 hours, there would be options for that person to pursue a longer-term protection order through the courts or to get some information about uh, safe housing or this is one thing I know that that Gabby's family especially her brother uh, was very adamant about her brother who's absolutely amazing person he's looking even further outside the box and he's a dog lover and he wants to see more shelters for women and families that will take pets because he recognizes how deeply connected some of these domestic abuse victims are to their pets. The, the, their pets are their emotional blanket, their, their safety thing. And as TJ, the, Gabby's brother, said, there's a lot of women that are afraid to leave a home, a, a situation, whether or not they have kids, they're afraid to leave a dog or cats or anything behind because if that guy is willing to abuse them, what is he going to do to their furry children, their pets? And if they can't take that pet with them to a shelter where they know that that pet is going to be safe as well, there's a good chance they won't leave that situation just because uh, they don't want any harm to come to the pet. And they're willing to take the abuse, they're willing to risk their life to be there to try to protect that pet. So again, these are all tools. There needs to be better tools for law enforcement to deal with domestic violence situations. They aren't all solved by making a domestic assault arrest. That, that is one path and that does open up options, but it's not always something as we see in Moab that's easy to do and sometimes backfires depending on how the law is written. And so it would be better to have a more comprehensive approach to investigating domestic assaults than a black and white, this is the law and this is the only thing, the only option you have. And then I'll say, I understand in the cases, again, I don't ever want this to be victim blaming. That's a big part of my podcast is we don't blame victims. And we've already seen, especially in episode one, that Gabby was scared to be away from Brian. And this is a sign of codependency especially for women who have been physically, mentally, and or emotionally abused and controlled. A very tough part of the toxic relationships is that the victim of these relationships often develops this codependency, and it's not their fault. It's just it's human nature to try to make the best of any situation. And really, the, the people who are the, whether you want to say it's the best or the worst, because the worst people 
could be the best at controlling somebody else, they know that they've exerted their control over somebody and that they can do just about anything they want as long as they complete that cycle of violence at some point. And as I just mentioned, I don't ever think that law enforcement is going to be the 100% solution and prevention of crimes of violence. Are they part of a bigger solution picture? Absolutely. They are. They have a very integral role in the investigation and to a certain degree prevention of some of these crimes. But you can't as society completely lean on law enforcement to get involved in these situations and work within their limitations to prevent crimes like those that happen against Gabby. However, that being said, I do think that more training and guidance for law enforcement is needed. And I know this is gonna elicit dislike from law enforcement officers because I was one. I know they're overworked and overloaded with training and paperwork, and they already feel pressure from society from so many different ways. But at the end of the day, law enforcement officers get into law enforcement to help people and that's a cornerstone that should never be weakened just because they feel like there's already too much on their plate. I think this is a very important part of, of law enforcement, protecting uh, victims of crimes. And if there's a way that we can do it better, even if it's going to require a little more training, a little more paperwork, I think that's not too much of an ask. And just like in other parts of law enforcement, officers are given black and white rules and guidelines, but we live in a world with a lot of grays. I think law enforcement as a whole would benefit from more options and better training in the art of navigating toxic relationships and how to effectively help people like Gabby see that what they are experiencing in terms of romantic feelings for someone close to them is natural and it's perfectly understandable to be confused and scared about being in a toxic relationship and not knowing how to get out of the situation. And this is not just for law enforcement, it's an issue for all of our society to combat. And we have to move away from what are just these band-aid solutions to help those experiencing toxic and dangerous relationships. So Gabby's family and their foundation are pushing for better education from a younger age on the dangers of toxic relationships and how to maintain healthy relationships. And I think that's a very important part of this entire story is, I think I mentioned this in, in part one, but we don't educate young adults on how to have a healthy relationship. We kind of let them navigate those waters on their own. And unfortunately, sometimes things happen along those those learning paths and it may be behavior brought in by a son or daughter of an abusive relationship. They've witnessed their mother abuse their father, their father abused their mother. They have normalized that as what is love, what is their, what is their relationship. And they bring that to a teenage relationship with physical, emotional, or, or verbal abuse, especially to dating someone who has not experienced that. And again, it's, it's just confusing. And, and when you mix those feelings with young love and puppy love and pressures from society to be a couple or be the perfect couple, there can be some major downfalls to not having an education process that says, hey, just because you experienced abuse growing up does not mean that that's normal that that's what you should be doing in your relationships if you've never experienced abuse or witnessed abuse these are the signs of it and if you're experiencing this it's not normal it's not okay behavior it's not healthy and, and eventually if we educate people and work through relationships and make sure that we have better, healthier relationships overall that'll decrease the number of toxic relationships that we have to deal with down the road.
and I don't do this often, at least from outside of my law enforcement experience, but I can speak from personal experience that I've been involved in toxic relationships where my girlfriend at the time was successful in isolating me from my friends and family, and it convinced me that it was in my own best interest to abandon those close to me and dedicate myself fully to her and her family. So looking back now, it's clear that I was in an unhealthy relationship there and I've been in others, and some that included domestic violence and emotional and mental abuse against me. But at the time, I was completely unaware, and I ignored all that advice from my friends and family to abandon the relationship. And that was a very surface-level toxic relationship. Yes, there was some levels of abuse there, but I never felt like I was in danger. I don't think that my girlfriend at the time would ever kill me. It was just a lot of manipulation and control in that relationship, and I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't handle it well. Thankfully, I had friends that were willing to take me back in after that relationship ended and I learned from it and I made a goal of not getting involved in that type of relationship again down the road. But if the situation had changed a bit and there was even more control and a, and a true danger to myself, I said I, I would have, could have potentially been a, a further victim of further domestic violence and even domestic homicide if this relationship was just a li little bit worse. So again, personal experience i don't fault some of these women for being in these relationships they're difficult to navigate they're difficult to figure out once you're in it how to get out of it um and that's but it's the reason that i'm very passionate about this cause and i'm hoping that i can work with various organizations in the near future to provide that further ed education via the podcast on the topics of domestic violence and prevention of violence against certain segments of our society so that's really my hope coming out of this is as I continue to do episodes, uh, as I said, episode 119, that was the last episode I recorded before I did these re-records of Gabby's case was Emma Walker. It was another case of a toxic teenage relationship that resulted in her death. And I think the more that I can break these down and talk about them and, and, and get that out there. And then as I work with organizations like the Gabby Petito Foundation to use some of my law enforcement experience to use some of my personal experience and get the word out there about these toxic unhealthy relationships again all it takes is changing a couple people's lives and hopefully it's a domino effect where we can start to get some education out there and start to get people talking about how we put an end to these relationships from both sides from educating the abusers to educating the victims so that we can all have healthier relationships. So, But that is it for the tragic case of Gabby Petito. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.